Welcome to another episode of PG Radio. Um, I'm going to keep this introduction very short, so you know you can meet your favorite guest uh, across the introduction quickly enough. Uh, on this episode of my podcast, I had Abhijit Ayer Mitra, and usually I have a question in mind when I go approach a guest. But with Abhijit, listening to him talk, there were so many places that I decided to take the conversation that I was like, you know what? It's not going to be worth it. Why not take it organically? And in that spirit of organicness, and in that spirit of honesty. Honestly, that Abhijit brings to the table, we eventually ended up in a very interesting zone of conversation. And what we ended up talking about has something to do with what Marx said back in the day. Karl Marx, a father figure of communism, gave his thesis, popularly known as Marxism and not to be confused with communism, saying that history was to be viewed as a conflict between the oppressor and the oppressed. And the object of oppression what decides who will be the oppressed and who will be the oppressor is material, is money, is commodities, is wealth. With that being said, Marx was not entirely wrong. And I think Abhijit and I both agree on the fact that economics guides more things than any amount of political argumentation does. However, what Marx missed out and what we ended up discussing, incidentally, me and Abhijit, were the boundary conditions along which economics operates. And these tend to be the grand narratives that shape societies, civilizations, and economies. These narratives, these stories, what we often refer to as culture, is the theme that organically appeared in the conversation I had with Abhijit. And we spoke about the many different strands of narratives that exist in India. We discussed where they begin and where they end, what could be used, what could be patched on those narratives. We discussed in Abhijit's um, relentless, honest way, we discussed how free markets and fixing the education system is going to help improve these narratives for a better future for our country. Having said that, having started on the note of Karl Marx himself, I know I don't, I know I'm not going to get any brownie points for explaining Marx to anybody. I welcome Abhijit Ayer Mitra on the other side of the show. Keep watching. Don't forget to like and subscribe and please make sure whatever you like from this podcast, make sure you mention the timestamp and write a comment. It helps me get across to people faster and better. All right, thank you so much. See you on the other side. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, like I said, I mean, I, I definitely want to bring you to talk about the real stuff because I think like you said, that is somebody has to say it and I value honesty over almost all other virtues, especially in a context where information and accurate information is scarce. Right. But before I begin, I, I want to give you a little bit of an introduction about myself because I know you heard about me through Anvesh, who's only known me so long. So a little bit of context about me would probably help you settle down in the end. So my name is Prakar Gupta. I'm a student of economics and psychology at Columbia University. I started this podcast about a year, year and a half ago now. I'm not entirely sure. It's been a little bit. Um, and I only started discovering or exploring, let's just say, the Indian political, journalistic, information landscape six months ago. Uh, up until then, I was focused purely on science because that is some part of my passion. Um, from then on, I became more open, open-ended and that has brought me to you. What I am is only naively curious. Um, I barely have picked any sides when it comes to politics because I think if I do that, at least publicly, it'll hinder the process of me having conversations with people I want to have conversations with. Um, and so anything I say or do is not in the interest of an implicit point, but is in the interest of only knowing better. Is right. that fair? Okay. Yeah. Fair point. So now why I said that is now going to be, uh, I'm going to make the case now. So th the first time I ever heard about you was not through Anvesh was in fact, neither through Anvesh nor Kushal was through Twitter. And the first time you popped up on my feed was this tweet that held nothing back. There was all, 
my behind this and my behind that about something something <laughs> and i was like this man has no fucks to give what is happening so what happened back then <laughs> i don't know man like um look you know i grew up in a very constricted family in the sense you know that it was always this abhijit behave yourself mm. you know and you know we don't say these things in public especially when you're babus and things like that and there always be this conniving going on you know my minister is this my minister is that how do i screw him over because i'm a babu brat both parents are babus huh. and you know i just the entire edifice of my upbringing it was just lie after lie after lie and you know lies come so easily to indians i don't think anybody as a race lies so easily and at the drop of a hat than indians do bas har cheez ke liye bas jhoot bol do you know like my dad used to say why uh, why be honest when a lie will do so you know i it it was sort of my rebelling out against this sort of pseudo grace pseudo um you this pretends somehow that uh, everything is just fine hmm. and uh, we're all the, these well behaved people everything is good and then you know i just didn't hold back after that it was it was quite liberating just saying what you wanted to say oh, in as many words i can attest yeah. to that i mean i i'm i'm fairly younger i think i probably very younger um, in comparison to you but i i resonate with that i i grew up with this pretense of performance for the sake of grace where you know you don't say a certain things because your role matters more than your pragmatic reality and therefore truth is secondary and grace is primary and it got to a point once i started doing all the sincere stuff where i was having conversations that were more sincere than i'd like to be the absurdist half of me was just let free automatically it was like this very psychoanalytical like liberation on some end where i don't tell people where to find me on social media uh, at least on instagram right now because i swear the shit out of that i i just cannot hold back and like in uh, so wrong i'll be sleeping and i'll be like do i swear too much on social media these days i'll i'll have that feeling cuz um you know but i want to ask you i'm i'm sure you saw red there was something that just signaled red to you and you drove in like a bull because that was that that tweet was was motivated by some sort of an anger and i want to ask you what that anger was without crossing a line i mean what was happening why 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 was the need for that look things that get me angry are a whole um spectrum of third ratedness right um third ratedness pisses me off third rate analysis mediocrity uh, uh third rate economics uh, socialism uh third rate well i mean you know what church right. used to say socialism is the politics of failure so you basically if you are socialist or lefty you must be a failure in that sense hmm. uh it's it's just duplicity hypocrisy hmm. um, and you know to be a human is to be a hypocrite that much i get but the point is i always go back to first principles and try to make myself as less hypocritical as i could possibly be um uh, unfortunately um you know i'm very demanding even of my interns uh you know i demand a certain standard of work from them and i've never been uh, you know my 
favorite interns have always been the precocious ones who I know will outshine me someday. I hope will outshine me someday. Because for me, I'm a completely unsuccessful mentor if my mentees aren't better than me. So, you know, it's, it's always been this sort of uh, dislike of third ratedness. That's my trigger. And so my question is then, uh, because that, that tweet was particularly pointed towards quote unquote Islamists. And is there a hypocrisy that is so obvious and apparent to you within the Islamist, within the left wing, within whatever lefties, liberals in, in, the, in the journalistic sphere, in the information sphere, in the political sphere? What is that hypocrisy? And why is it not obvious for me to see it? Somebody who's just trying to observe from the outside. Why is it so difficult for me to parse through this hypocrisy? Is this hypocrisy on the Islamist side? Is it on the Hindutva side? Why is this so difficult? Well, look, Hindutva has its own hypocrisies, but that's a different matter. For me, the worst hypocrisy is when, you know, you have, and you, you know, you need to take this sort of uh, trajectory of how anthropologically religions have developed, right? With Hinduism, we had our sort of wars of religion and the Rig Veda was a sort of treaty of Westphalia where everyone agrees to mind their own business, not their Pope poke their nose into other people's business. So in, the, in that sense, what happens in the 1600s in Europe has already happened in about 1000 BC in India. And you devolve into this kind of chillax, man. Organized religion is shit. Just do what you want. Do you do you kind of thing like they say. 3000 years ago? Yeah, about 3000 years ago. I mean, I'm not going to get into this debate right, because right. some people say Rig Veda is 5000 years old and all of that. I'm just going by what Romila Thapar taught me in ancient history of India, right. which is again, you're going to get a lot of abuse for this. But whatever. Right. Uh, right. With Christianity, it comes about after a long adjustment period. And then you have the wars of religion in Europe. But remember, European Christianity and Christianity influenced by Europe in, say, Latin America, which was colonized much earlier, hmm. tends to become a lot more mellow. You go back to Christianity in, say, Africa today, it's extremely violent, extremely predatory and things like that. Hmm. Uh, like the Lord's Resistance Army in uh, Uganda, what was it, Uganda or something like that, which hmm. was... I mean, that was a Christian version of ISIS in that sense. You know? mm. So uh, the Taiping Rebellion, uh, which was, uh, it wasn't exactly Christian, but it was Christian inspired in a sense, the heavenly kingdom. And it killed off what, about 10, 12% of China's population at that point of time. So, you know, it's, it, it's, it's different. With uh, Islam, you've never had that reckoning. Mm. You've never had that huge sort of clash of religion happening. You've had the Shia Sunni thing going on and on, uh, on and off. And so they haven't come to this entire culturally, sociologically, they haven't come to this sort of, you know, just live and let live. There, there is no way an Islamic society can declare itself secular for any period of time in that sense there's always going to be some form of blasphemy or whatever or um, sacrilege, what have you out there. Mm. And you see that, and that really pisses me off in India because you have, you, you understand this perfectly well. And yet you will have this entire apologia for, you know, uh, uh, say the hijab. Now I completely understand the hijab in a sense is just like say a French woman who would probably be the most sexually liberated women I know in uh, the world pretty much wearing same makeup and uh, this thing, because it's still a face covering. You're still doing it for social 
social validation. It's still a covering on your face. And yes, it is very damaging because that is why you have so many cases of anorexia, bulimia, you know, these look-related diseases and things like that. So on one hand, you condemn the other one. But then these same liberals, they'll go about saying, you know, hijab sets you free. It de-objectifies you. Hmm. I mean, seriously, what the hell, man? That's a forced See, explanation. It's a, it's a completely forced explanation. And all this nonsense about, you know, this Dalit Muslim unity out here, when in fact, you know, they are in the, they are in those competing spheres where Dalit Muslim violence because of the economic strata is at the greatest, a disprivileged group that ruled India for a long time that refused to modernize and fell down, helped by the British as well, kicked to the curb. And the Dalits who have been oppressed by Indian society, they sort of compete for the same space. You look at butchers, for example, halal and uh, sort of chatka because it was considered dirty work or whatever. That is where the greatest social friction is. And yet you're trying to weld an alliance together. It's an intersectionality. Mm. I mean, with all due respect, I'm a homosexual and I'm never going to march with anybody that wants to throw me off the roof mm. or refuses to condemn anything that says I should be thrown off a roof. Mm. Right. So the, the hypocrisy when it comes to Islam, you want to break I mean, you want to go after every religion, I'll support you. But if you want to do it selectively, screw you. So it seems like um, that there is a particular patch of upgrade that we could hypothetically put on, say, Hinduism and Christianity, which might be, how do we make it better? That if we apply the same to Islam, it actually promotes some sort of regressiveness. Am I, am I correct in understanding that? It's yeah, pretty much. Uh, that somehow when you, uh, you know... Uh, Try to level the level the playing field in this moment. You are actually not helping the case. Is that exactly? If 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 you sort of justify any kind of regret, or even try to explain, forget justify. Hmm. You try to explain anything about Hinduism or Christianity. It's regressive. You're a right wing uh, homophobe or a bigot or something like that. But if you don't do that to Islam, hmm. it's sort of you know um, you're an Islamophobe. End of story. And, you know, Islamophobe in that sense is used the way anti-Semit used to be used to by the anti-defamation league and things like that. In fact, I blame them for this. They started off this entire nonsense, uh, admitted that there were very good criteria, like, for example, blood libel and things like that, which would easily just come off. But what you're seeing on that form of speech control and delegitimization has now been, you know, taken its natural course now to the point where those same ADL activists now would be considered completely Islamophobic and be deplatformed. Right. I mean, the, the, the snake is beginning to eat its own tail. It's very obvious here in America in the liberal circles. But here is my question, or at least here is, here is a thesis that I have and tell me what you think about it. In my general understanding, as long as we do not have a grander economic narrative to believe in, we do not as a society and any society for that matter, move to the libertarian part of existence, right? It is as long as you're holding on to some tradition in the past for your primary sense of identity, there is no way you can incorporate an updating mechanism to that meme, right? So in view of that, in view of the fact that, and first tell me how you feel, but in view of that, don't you think we need more economic narratives than culturally identitarian narratives in the Indian political sphere? 
absolutely. So this, this is something I've always noticed. It's, it's not just with India, but across the globe, if you look at it. Uh, ossified or rotting societies keep tend to looking to the past for validation. Uh, whereas societies that are economically vibrant start looking to the future. Right. Uh, this is why, you know, there's always this talk of Ram Rajya or we should go back to the Rashidun Caliphate. If only the first four caliphs were alive, then, you know, the Arab world won't be the way it is. And um, you, you, with the Christianity, it was, oh, you know, Christ is about to come. All these Armageddon cults and things like that were all about that in that sense. Future, but based on the past, you know, Christ is returned or whatever. Uh, in India, we still see that a lot. And the way you get out of it, is economic progress in that sense. Uh, you know, the clearest example of this that you have is in Barbara Tuchman's The uh, Calamitous uh, 14th Century. Uh, if you read it, she'll show you how, you know, the tomorrow of the average peasant wasn't going to be that much better. So they used to imagine this golden past to sort of justify hope for the future. The economy is no longer like that. In an agrarian economy, the total you could only produce was this much. Unfortunately, India is still very agrarian. So, you know, it's still that sort of medieval mindset that applies to a lot of it. But then what happens is you find these agrarian tropes dominating the urban discourse as well, right? Which is very, very scary. Now, the way of getting out of this is to have economic growth because economic growth like anybody will tell you, financial liberation is what gives you confidence. In India, we don't see that. I mean, INC, the International Congress was disastrously socialist. Now the BJP has turned into, you know, I have a theory that the CP, the Communist Party of India got wiped out because their ghost has gone and infected the BJP. They behave like communists right now. Uh, I think Prakash Karat and Sitaram Yechudi would be particularly proud of the work that uh, Narendra Modi is doing in that sense economically. What do you mean by that? So, uh, all this, there is no focus on growth. It is all on distribution, 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 delivery of goods and services to the people. Where is the stimulus for growth? Okay, now you can go on about this nonsense about a GST is the best thing that happened to the economy. It would have if you had a single slab GST. Mm. But, um, you know, in, in that sense, it was Arun Jaitley who made this statement about BMWs and potatoes. How can we tax a BMW at the same rate as potatoes? And I don't think he understood that about 15, 20 years back, Lalu Prasad Yadav, who everybody, I mean, he's, he's, he's got a fantastic sense of humor, but he is an idiot, uh, used to say, Garib khaye alua, Amir khaye halua, ye kaise sahasakat hai lalua. So just because Arun Jaitley changes the context doesn't make it any less of a Laluism. Hmm. So essentially what you have today, Modiism, is Laluism wrapped in a different form. Hmm. It's that same destructive no growth. Uh, wealth is a dirty word. Mm. How is it in a society where we worship Lakshmi? You know, Diwali, people here used to break the legs of uh, a Lakshmi ki murti mm. so that wealth won't leave your house. Mm. Lakshmi could leave your house, therefore wealth won't leave your house. Mm. Where a society celebrated wealth, you look at the ossification of Indian thought in that sense. As long as you, you're going towards urbanization in the BC period, achieve urbanization. 
we're doing good. You know, we stop foreign invasions. It's a vibrant society. It's producing a lot. La di da di da. Uh, violent, yes, but militaristic, yes, but that's normal in a pre-industrial age. Well, it's also normal in an industrial age in that sense. It's just the societal violence is reduced, uh, and so on and so forth. And suddenly, when this whole across the globe, this period of you know feudalism and deurbanization sets in, that's when this whole sort of self-doubt, this poverty and things like that set in and you have a sort of, the mind becomes a mean, nasty place closed up and things like that. Hmm. It, it's, it's a pattern and I don't know how to get out of it. Uh, the BJP was our last hope in the sense and you know, they've turned into the Bharati Communist Party. Yeah. Right. But it's, it's, it's weird because 2000, like, here is what I do say about my politics online. 2014, there was no way I would have not voted for Modi if I was old enough, right? I would have voted for Modi. And I know so many people who would have voted for Modi. By 2019, things had changed for a lot of people. But the reason why we would have voted for Modi was because of the Gujarat model. We saw this, just this hub of free market kind of capitalism as far as we could have imagined in, in, in the confines of India happen in Gujarat. We saw rivers get cleaned. We saw statues that actually look great, right? What happened once they got into the national office? What happens, what happens then? What happens post 2014? Why, why so much discrepancy? So in 2014, I voted for Modi. Uh, and, uh, in 2019, I tried not to vote for Modi. Unfortunately, the other side was so bad. My, um, motivator was, Modi is the least of all the bad things that could happen to India. So, you know, I, I don't believe in wasting my vote. Mm. So I voted for Modi again. Uh, but what is the driver of this change from the Gujarat model? Well, look, here's the point. I don't think the Gujarat model was that great to begin with. Uh, when we look at it now with the benefit of hindsight. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that Modi was very good at creating these narratives to sell, number one, which he still is. I mean, he's a great manipulator of the media and things like that. But number two, his detractors never forced on factually dissing the Gujarat model. All they ever went on was on a uh, Godra, 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 Godra which actually served Modi's purposes. Because I think with the benefit of hindsight, we can now say that Godra was a, uh, a tragedy of omission, not a crime of commission. What do you mean by that? Uh, so the opposition would have you believe that Godra was deliberately spurted on by Modi and the BJP and all of that. Um, all the evidence that we've seen doesn't seem to support that because everything's been shut down by the Supreme Court. And if you look at all the transcripts from the Supreme Court, it certainly does support omission. Hmm. Now in India, you don't have crimes of omission. Hmm. Okay. Omission isn't penalized. Omission isn't held accountable. Omission isn't criminalized, unlike in America where it is. So hmm. you have a tragedy of omission, not a crime of omission. Hmm. So the opposition wanted you to believe it was a crime of commission. And they went on shifting goalposts, lying, overstretching themselves just to prove this one point. Mm. Uh, and the entire thing was caught up between Modi's narrative, which was growth, and the opposition narrative, which was murder. Uh, both of which in that sense were completely false. Mm. So you look at a state, a small state like Gujarat that only sends 20 MPs to uh, parliament. Uh, 
it's very easy to manage things. And the state list is also very small. So you can actually micromanage. If our money comes and says, hey man, I need to set up a factory. I'm going to give you jobs. Find me some land. Hmm. Yeah, great. It's going to work. And you know, Gujarati mindset is, you won't come across obstructionism in Gujarat. If you look at them traditionally, Gujarat never sends people to the IAS. They hate the IAS in that sense. Uh, the only IAS uh, Gujaratis that you have are a PhD in yoga who turned out to be a disastrous finance secretary. Hmm. Uh, so you don't want them in the IAS either. Hmm. But they're the kind of people, if you want land, they'll be like, ha, kitna paisa? Mm. And then you give them the money and then, you know, you get what you want. Sardar Sarovar is a different story. That was more to do with, uh, you know, tribal nomadic populations and things like that in that area. So that's a different conversation to have. But Gujus are normally very, very enterprising. They'll always look at a business opportunity. The trade unions will collaborate with you, cooperate with you and things like that. When you come to Delhi, you can no longer micromanage these things. The problem set increases geometrically. I mean, forget geometrically, it's a quantum increase. You're looking at a lot more subjects. The complexity is great. The homogeneity is, the heterogeneity grows by many millions of folds. Because, you know, as you know, any state also, there is no homogeneity out there. Even in a state, landholding patterns change, uh, inheritance patterns change, all kinds of things change. So I think he's basically gone from a micro model that worked well to a macro that doesn't. For example, socialism mm-hmm. works really well in, say, a small country like Sweden or Norway. Mm-hmm. And there, there are different problems. I mean, we can get to that in a later stage. Right. But when you right. scale it up to a big country, it doesn't work at all. Mm. So it can work in a village. So it, the Gujarat model was great for Gujarat. When you scale it up nationally, it just turns out to be socialism. And the problem is we didn't understand at that point um, that the Gujarat model was very state-centric. He did not privatize power or anything like that. He just made them more efficient. That was all. He can't do that at the center. Uh, He's got this sort of mentorship affection to the IAS that handheld him through the Gujarat phase. He doesn't realize that you know, you can, you can, dealing with a state, being a district magistrate or a collector, you're dealing literally with a population of about three, four million people. You're looking at their problems. You can sort it all out at this kind of micro level. Macro, it doesn't work. So you've got two matched range of low competences that have been Peter principled onto a, uh, you know, hmm onto a national structure, which they are completely unsuited for. Right. Prepared for, probably clueless about. Right. When I, I spent one summer in Punjab interning with a government institute that trains post-qualified IAS and other bureaucrats. And I spent the summer interning sort of doing what they would do, but on a very, very micro level. Now, what I was good at is, um, so part of my job was to go to say Ludhiana's Punjab Agricultural University to go to a government school, to go to hospitals and drug centers and, and all this variety of museums and whatnot, just to, you know, but what I was good at was getting conversations in with people who matter. And when those conversations were happening, I learned a lot. And part of, part of the, part of what I wanted to ask them, almost most of them was what happened to the Khalistani dream? Why is that no longer active? What happened to it in the sense, like, is it dead? Do people no longer want it? And most of them gave me um, a very similar answer, which was 
we would be happy if the state list had more power. That if the, if the, if India as a state got more federal, we, the state governments had more power, we'd be happy. What do you think about that notion? Do you think there is any merit to that? Um, again, it's one of those cut and paste dreams, and I'll tell you why. Hmm. Theoretically, federalism should work. Hmm. Unfortunately, out here we have seen states get more power, and they uh, they're just as useless as the center is, right? Uh, the states are just better at wrapping up their incompetence in vernacular. Mm. Uh, the center just does it in English and Hindi. That's the difference. Uh, policy is made by people. Policy is the aggregate of your of the people you have in charge. When you have morons and duffers in charge, you're going to have moron and duffer policy, mm. right? Mm. Uh, so it has nothing to do with federalism per se. Theoretically, federalism would work, but for me in India, that's a cut and paste solution. Mm. Because when your human capital is so low, uh, your policy making is going to be shit. Mm. And it's not going to change anything. Because look at these states. So, for example, even in the states, agriculture is a state policy, uh, urban development, cities is a state policy. Yet, do you see any city in India? that has sorted out its problems of uh, expansive growth in the last two, three decades. Do you see uh, agriculture? They could have all moved towards drip agriculture, water conservation. What's prevented them from doing that? They refuse to do that. Even now, my state, Tamil Nadu, for example, has this long festering dispute with Karnataka. And one of the upper riparian obligations on Karnataka is you will not carry out uh, uh, repair of your waterworks hmm. because efficiency was deemed as somehow extracting more water even though we now realize that drip irrigation because it's you know it's the weakest link in the chain that makes crops grow better hmm. so essentially starving that crop of water and just feeding it exactly what it requires that produces the most i mean that makes it most productive hmm. you don't you don't have that so you know show me an example um, you 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 know you can cherry pick. You can show me maybe one example per state, two or three examples per state. But overall, all the states are just as incompetent as managing their policies as anybody else's. Education, for example, nobody. We've got such a huge education problem. Just to get to China's level, you're going to need something like four hundred to five hundred billion dollars a year. Mm. Uh, to invest in education, I'm just talking about factory floor workers. Mm. Forget all the Mera Bacha engineer, Agla Bill Gates hair nonsense. Mm. You spend $8 billion of public money and $8 billion of private money on education. Where is $16 billion? Where is $500 odd billion? Mm. Right? Uh, okay, so one of the things you can then do is to simplify the curriculum. Do a scientific study on what do kids actually retain. You know, Swiss had a fantastic education model for their goat herders and things like that, which is we'll just teach you what's required to make you better goat herders, basic literacy and things like that. And they didn't try to make a goat herder into the next, I don't know, owner of what's a great Swiss brand, Lint uh, Chocolatier or, uh, you know, Victor owner or Rolex owner or something right, like that. Right, right. They just try to make them better goat herds and things like that. Here we have unrealistic expectations, bad investment. We don't invest in education and you're not even looking at what the output should be. Mm. You're trying to 
there are people who can be the next Bill Gates that you're bringing down because of your learn by road system. There are people down here who will never be Bill Gates that you're basically feeding a fake dream to to raise them up to this level. Mm. You're basically here you're crushing their hopes. Here you're preventing growth. Mm. So either way you look at it, it's a lose-lose model of education. It's one of the trashiest, shittiest models of education you will ever have. In a sense, you know, our education system is borderline. It's child rape. Mm-hmm. It is child rape in a sense. It's just oh. a different kind of rape. It's mental rape. Mm-hmm. That's a strong statement. But you know what? I, I do not disagree with the fact. I, I, I know that you probably studied in India only for a short while. And I think that was in Kashmir, right? I, I uh, <laughs> spent most of my time at a Delhi public school. So I can tell you for a matter of fact, like here is the deal. I think what is unique about me and I'm just only slightly something that is unique about me is my mother's insistence that you will, you will not wrote learn. You will understand from first principle. And I didn't even know what first principle was. The statement was And so what would happen is if I can visualize three laws of physics, I can write them in the paper. If I cannot visualize them, then well, go to hell. Like I cannot do that. And that would have, that would incur me a cost when it came to, um, for instance, my English before my English board exams, I remember my English teacher walked up to me. She was like, if you write the way you write, you will not be graded well. And I was like, that is super funny for writing well, for being more proficient in a language, I'll be graded down. And that is a sad paradox that exists at the core of the Indian education model. There is no denying that to mechanize everything to as that the teachers are too busy that they cannot, you know, they're also bored. I have seen it in front of my eyes, teachers spending doing nothing. It is just that the culture does not exist. And so in that vein of thought, I agree with you that, you know, the leaders are a reflection of the society that, you know, whatever is happening is at the core, a societal individual personalized problem and not as much a systematic, you know, architectural framework issue. So to that effect, I also diagnose that your two big complaints are one that we need to be more free market. Who are we kidding? And two, what the hell are you doing about the education system? Am I correct in understanding that? Yeah. Uh, but just to correct one thing, I mm. did study quite a bit in India, in mm. Madras, in Delhi, TPS, by the way, Mathura Road. Oh, <laughs> not the RK Puram for smart kids, uh, Mathura right. Road for the dumb kids. Right. Uh, and, uh, but also abroad. And every time, and this was a dichotomy my parents never got, mm. that every time I studied abroad, I was at the top of my class. Mm. Uh, I was the darling of the teachers because they enjoyed kids who questioned, who wanted to go more that in the assignment, I would never submit what they had been taught in class in the assignment. I would go do more research and come up with these fantastic things that they didn't expect me to come off with. So I would get, it used to be straight A students throughout. Mm -hmm. And every time I come back to India, I'd be failing or fail grade. Right. Oh, that is a large difference. That's a huge difference. Hmm. So it was the same with my BCom. You know, with my BCom, I didn't do particularly well. And then I land up in Australia and start doing my uh, international relations. And I'm again, top of the class. And they're like, do you want to start teaching? Right. So it's, it's there, there's something about this, um, you know, this education system, it's, it's, it, it, it's damaging our kids. I don't think parents realize how much it's damaging their kids. But the thing is, we used to have a quality system and a quantity system. Uh, you know, when India became independent, we were, what, 10% urban, 90% rural. And the way Indian democracy was mediated, American democracy was 50% to urban areas, 50% to rural areas. 
In India, it was different. Economic power to these cities, political power to the villages. Mm. So even now, it's almost an apartheid system because fewer people in villages actually control more Lok Sabha seats than the greater urban population. We're almost 60% urban technically. It's hidden. Officially, we're 45% urban. Actually, we're about 60% urban because you know uh, you, you have these things like uh, so-called villages within cities. I live in a place called Sabdarjan. Mm-hmm. And there are about six, seven villages in the middle of Sabdarjan. They're not villages, but they're classified as villages or slums or whatever right. you want to call it. Uh, so, you know, there's all these uh, trickery uh, things that happen. Now, the thing was in cities, you used to have all the fine conversation. The, uh, you know, teachers had time to sort of teach you and, you know, put up with your eccentricities and things like that. And remember, I'm 42 now. So I'm talking about the good old days of the 80s when... Uh, uh, you know, Delhi used to look like Pyongyang in those days. Mm-hmm. The thing that I, the first thing I landed up in Pyongyang, I was like, oh my God, this is just like Delhi when I was a kid. Yay, there are no cars on the road and, you know, <laughs> clean air and nadi right. nadi right. uh, But all of that changes in 1991 when you have the economic reforms, which were good. I mean, they were a good thing. Mm-hmm. Rastam mm-hmm. did more for this country than anybody else before him or after him has ever done. You have this huge migration of about 600 million people to your cities. And what was meant to be the preserve of quality had to then cater to quantity and everything just dropped. Mm. Quality bhi nahi raha, quantity bhi nahi raha. You can't deal, you, you were never built for that kind of quantity. Quality got destroyed. So right now you just have na ghar ka, na ghat ka. You just have uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me, what is very interesting is you said Narsimha Rao did more or less. Usually people are very friendly to credit this to Manmohan Singh. And I'm wondering if you skipped that name on purpose. Look, what was Manmohan Singh? Do you think Manmohan Singh could have done anything without the political backing of Narsimha Rao? I think all the people who say Manmohan Singh is responsible and not Narsimha Rao are basically trying to, uh, you know, take away credit from Narsimha Rao. Narsimha Rao had a weaker government than anybody before him. And yet he pulled off so much more, you know, including preparations for the nuclear test, which never happened, but they were all kept ready and everything, than any of his successors did. So, you know, I, I think it's just mean and nasty to take credit away from him. Right. So here's my question. Part of your job profile is that of being a defense analyst. And what I've observed, at least in the limited time of my life, is that there is a resurgence of the Indian, Indic, Hindu, Hindutva identity, where we are finally beginning to get proud of who we are. I remember when I was growing up, the rhetoric was, India mein to aisa hi hota hai. Now it's a little different. It has its own problems, whatever, whatever. But at what has happened is at least we were like, yes, India. And Given what happened to China, with China for that matter, um, I personally felt like I'm not going to take this. I was personally motivated. I was like, I'm not going to take this. But my fear is that the people who are heading the nation are at least three or four generations older than I am. And so so there is some, some amount of incongruence between the two. My doubt is, do you think it is being managed well? Do you think by the time I grow up enough to lead the country hypothetically, not that I want to get into politics, but when I'm in the decision-making age, uh, we would still have the India that we like or what is happening at the Chinese border? Uh, look, I mean, 
Uh, do you want to <coughs> do you want me to talk about it just with China or with Hindutva? Because they kind of let's see. Let's let, start where you want, and then because I don't know what the difference would be. Okay, so with in our dealing with China in that sense, we're basically dealing with accumulated baggage of a lack of human investment. Be it a bad defense policy, be it a bad foreign policy. Uh, you know, uh, today. The foreign minister has gone and said we are not going to get it aligned into any camp. Mm. This after China has gone and killed twenty of your men. Mm. Okay, we didn't want to get any into any camp after they killed, maimed, or took prisoner about ten thousand of our people. Mm. Okay, uh, this this is the kind of stupidity, compound stupidity, mm. uh, that afflicts our policy. And sadly, you know, I'm all for Hindutva. Mm. I'm for Hindutva when it is a positive expression of your cultural resurgence. But you cannot have a positive expression of cultural resurgence unless you have a strong growing economy mm. and you have the sort of human excellence to back it up. Mm. A Hindu resurgence cannot be built on the back of a beggar economy and on the back of third raters who basically justify their, you know, the fact that they will never be celebrated. Uh, they hide it. They hide their third ratedness behind being Indic. Now I know a lot of people who are Indic who are outstanding at what they do. Uh, and you know, unfortunately this whole word Indic has been hijacked by the third rate brigade. It's third raters who claim that, you know, it's, it's, it's like, um, somebody, it's like a teacher who can't explain a problem to their student claiming that he or she isn't the problem. The students are the problem. Mm. If, if the students are the problem, then you're not a very good teacher. teacher right? Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this unfortunately is the thing with the so-called Indic resurgence. And what I see here is of course the third ratedness of the, uh, uh, regime ancien that's gone out the Congress and its ecosystem is bare for all to see. If you noticed in this entire thing for two months, these people were bullshitting without a single satellite image to back you up. They refused to commit to a map. They refused to draw down the map and then they went on shifting. You know, it's uh, one day it would be five kilometers uh, here, then it'd be five kilometers there, then it'd be 1.5 kilometers to the south, whatnot, and things like that. Hmm. Then uh, our former ambassador and foreign secretary, Nirupama Menon, she put out this uh, listing, uh, this uh, sort of uh, report, parliamentary report that had come back based on the India China border negotiations in 1960 or 61, where one of the things, one of the coordinates marked for Galwan. Uh, 78 West, la di da di da, would have been 68 West, would have, uh, sorry, 68 East, uh, would have been in West of Kabul. Mm. So you had this sort of third ratedness even then in 1960, where they couldn't plot coordinates properly. Mm. And you have it continuing. But in all of this, what comes out as a counter is that people say to anti-national hair. Can you come up with satellite imagery to prove that you are Can you come up with some 
literary or some kind of literary evidence or you know some other kind of evidence to prove it no hmm. so there's a huge lack of and this is what worries me about hindutva that hmm. i fear that i look at it as the most positive aspects the reality is that a lot of it is fed by the sort of negative gripe uh, which is a very very dangerous thing so i understand sometimes where these people are coming from where the left is coming from when they say you know this is like uh, 1930s germany and so on and so forth unfortunately you know if you look at the right as a whole that simply isn't true they want to magnify the worst elements in it and stereotype the whole right based on some particularly nasty unsavory characters and let me give you an example of why they are wrong you look at it historically the indian right the sort of hindu right has had three streams there were the ultra progressives like savarkar who wanted you know absolute abolition of caste and things like that who thought that you know uh, protecting cows was a fool's errand and so on and so forth then you had the rss which was sort of conservative which believed that social change has to keep pace with society it can't be shoved down and then there were the outright regressives the outright regressives have always been the loudest and within the right they have lost every single battle they have lost every single argument they have lost every internal power play which had always settled in the centrist rss in that sense which then forced savarkar to also say that you know gau raksha protection of the cow is central to a hindu identity set because you know he himself was an atheist so he said yes because we have to make a sort of this um uh, we have to compromise find some kind of a compromise solution this is one of the things we can kind of agree on mm. let's keep this but you tell me when has the regressive right ever won out in india who's the regressive right who's the regressive right here vhs regressive right are the people who say you know caste jati is not varna they they justify untouchability and crap like that saying you know caste is still good it is still relevant ladi dadi da Do we have any uh, examples the, of these people, just so that I can put a finger on them? Is that uh, not party? Really. I just, the moment I come across them, I just start blocking them left, right, and center. So hmm. I'm like, hmm. uh, you know, uh, it's like you know, if you're asking me the location of a public toilet, man, hmm. like, hmm. right? You know, like, <laughs> shit, shit, I mean, you should memorize the smell of that shit and the location of the shit. You right. just need to move out of there. Hmm. Uh, so <clears throat> they'll say like. look our brave uh, women warriors used to commit sati it was so brave and all of that now i can understand you know what would happen to them once the turks had taken them slaves was awful hmm. but to justify it the way you justify it saying you know it, it was an act of desperation it wasn't an act of valor in that sense um, you know it's like masada what happened at masada the jews committing suicide when the 10th legion under flavius silva is besieging it during the uh, Jewish wars it's it's like that i mean it's 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 a, it's a complex narrative and this love that they have you know hinduism one of the reasons even though i'm an atheist i will always identify as a hindu is the sheer complexity of it where there's no black or white for anything okay you can be a militant atheist that i am but still be a devout hindu which i do consider myself a devout hindu mm. uh and there is no contradiction out there hmm. but these guys everything is 
the guys who are loudest about this Abrahamic faiths and their binaries, black and white, are the exact bloody chimpanzees who have this sort of black and white view of the world. You're either with us or against us kind of thing. So this is a problem. Mm. I'm not saying it isn't a problem. Mm. The problem is the left exaggerates it. Mm. Exaggerates it to the point where you're making fools of yourselves. Mm. It's completely inaccurate in terms of policy. It's inaccurate in a whole host of other things. And they go overboard with it. They don't really care how much damage is caused, which pisses me off. Uh, so, you know, again, we're getting back to triggers. Right. But so I, I think you, you, you picked upon that. And that's, that's my concern with Hindutva for that matter. And it's not just Hindutva, but the politicization of any culture, what that eventually leads to is a narrowing line that ends up at a point. And that point is how you will be if you are a Hindu, everything else, which is absolutely against the spirit of Hinduism. Hinduism is not a point. It's a nexus of many, you know, like when I, um, I was, I was taking this one class in, in, in ancient Hindu um, plays and we started reading through the different variations of the Mahabharata itself across India. And you come to realize to establish what is truly Mahabharat is, you know, like it's a nexus. There is a conversation happening between all these small and I, I, my fear with the politicization of the culture is that eventually we will all have to either cross a certain line to be a part of it or otherwise you're out of it. Is that a fair fear or... Am I just thinking too much? Am I just too influenced? No, no, no. Right. That, that's a very real fear. And so, you know, it's it's sort of the Abrahamization of Hindu, Hinduism. Yes. Uh, and remember, the what we call the Abrahamization of Hinduism comes from this sort of inferiority complex and fear. Hmm. Inferiority complex and fear are never good drivers of policy. Hmm. Uh, and unfortunately, we see that, and you know, this is where what irritates me with the left, that no matter what Hinduism does, Hinduism is a shitty religion. Uh, it's, look at Islam, it's so progressive. Uh, Hinduism, look at it, it's so regressive, blah, 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 nonsense, la di da di da, so on and so forth. Uh, you're sort of normalizing anger. Mm. You're normalizing hatred. Mm. You're normalizing gripe. Mm. You're normalizing third-ratedness. Mm. You're justifying violence mm. uh, or, you know, just whitewashing it. Uh, none of these are good. And the Hindu right is learning from this. They're adapting to this. And in the process, they're actually Abrahamizing more and more and more and more. And yet I find it's the people who claim that Hinduism is Abrahamizing the most that are the loudest critics of Hinduism and the biggest apologists of Islam. Mm. Okay. Mm. So I don't take it seriously. So for example, in one of your uh, podcasts that I saw, um, a certain uh, editor uh, of a certain uh, uh, web portal was saying, you know, I don't consider what Arnab Goswami does to be journalism. Mm. Now here's my issue. Show me a definition of journalism Mm. an accepted definition of journalism that says that what Arnab Goswami does is not journalism. Mm. Mm. Okay. Mm. You can't. I mean, let's be real about it. I have personal problems with Arnab's style of journalism in the modern time. Right. You could, but see your personal problems doesn't make him any less of a journalist. I mean, are you really saying he fits all the category because if you pass off 
today CNN, NDTV, everybody pass off opinion as news. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, nobody sticks to the rule anymore of keeping news. Opinions were only meant to be relegated to the op-ed page, not to the news pages. Today, nobody does that anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, Arnab does exactly what I, Arnab does more hyperbolistically mm-hmm. what NDTV taught him to do. If you go back to all these uh, left, right, center or whatever those programs were on NDTV, mm-hmm. they used to have left, right, center, but there'll usually be four or five people from the left or anti-BJP and there would always be one person from the BJP. Mm-hmm. So they would get five times the amount of time to talk mm-hmm. versus one. And then you would have a carefully handpicked audience that would only reflect a sort of left-wing, lefty point of view. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Arnab does the same thing, just in a much louder manner. I mean, at least much more honest to have three people from the left and three people from the right. He shouts them both down. That's a different matter. Right. right? So it's mostly him talking. Right. He gets this much talk time. Everybody else gets this much talk time. Right. But tell me, mm-hmm. how is, say, News Laundry, Wire, Scroll, Hindu, NDTV any different? They're all guilty of the same thing. Okay. They just put on a facade because they're not hyperbolistic, mm. they put on a facade of being more journalistic. But again, let's go back to definitions. Tell me what is the definition of journalism mm. which categorizes you as a journalist and Arnab not as a journalist? All right. So here is here is my complaint with Arnab. And Arnab's not um, Arnab for me. He's a placeholder. And the reason why he's a placeholder is because I grew up admiring his journalism when I was younger, when I was in eighth standard, seventh standard, I would look up to him and be like, this is the kind of man who asks the questions that need to be asked. And I was naive enough to, you know, what happened eventually. And I think it is, it has a lot to do with just more, just let, let's just say the modern conundrum of traditional media or any media for that matter is that it incentivizes dramatics, theatrics, sensationalism over information. And so from a first principle point of view, information like here is if i want to make up my mind about indian politics what i need is information and if the information architecture is so deeply corrupted by just pure capitalistic incentives not because of somebody's ill will but pure capitalistic incentives i can't trust anybody i can't make up my mind and then i am left to decide i'm grasping at straws when it comes to making up my mind when you know and deciding for my future and whatnot and so that is my problem is my I, i'm probably holding arnab to greater standards and that might be because i grew up admiring him but the but fact something. how is uh does scroll wire news laundry not seek to make profit they're all, all sort of, of them do they don't exactly all of them do. so I'm either you come up with a non-profit version of journalism mm-hmm. otherwise they're all corrupted they're all playing their own games mm-hmm. which is all access games power games and you know ecosystem games and all that nonsense Mm-hmm. So you know, uh, I mean, you, let, let me just carry this a little bit forward. You you can you can totally not like Times Now and Republic. Mm-hmm. I get that. I can't stand Scroll. I can't stand News Laundry mm-hmm. uh, uh, for a different set of reasons. Scroll at least has quite good intellectually argued content. News Laundry sort of the Republic of the left in that sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here's the point: What is the rule? under which Republic does not constitute journalism. Let's first get I mean, first again. so here is the issue. Mm-hmm. This is why all these people will tell you, Oh, Arnab Goswami needs to go to jail. Mm-hmm. Arnab Goswami is this Arnab Goswami is a disgrace to journalism and all of that. They're all bloody disgraces to journalism. Every single 
big shot editor today is a bloody disgrace to journalism. Mm-hmm. You don't get in Indian journalism anywhere unless you played access or you know greased palms and shit like that, or been a complete fucking sleaze your entire life. Mm. My in defense of Abhinandan, um, and since we were you know uh, talking about that particular interview, I I find prime of a side the news laundry model economically more trustable than the ad paid TRP incentivized uh, screaming contests on Republic. So purely on economic, not personal, economic level. What do you have to say about that? Don't you think that is at least, you know, more trustable in that sense? No, I don't. Because look, it doesn't matter what, if you are a for-profit model, you're either playing the ad game or you're playing the ecosystem game. Usually it's a mix of the two. I don't trust either. Mm. Because ecosystem means you're creating an echo chamber. Ad means you're doing what your ad funders want you to do, what your advertisers want you to do. Right. Uh, basically, which is to get more hits from the ecosystem mm. so that the message, the ad message gets to the ecosystem, which is why you combine the two. So, mm. no, I'm sorry, I don't actually find the news laundry model or this public funding, uh, you know, support us model that some others have or anything like that. Hmm. Or the events model that a lot of other uh, companies have, like for example, Business Standard is an events model. You know, they run events is where the money comes in. Uh, the newspaper is just sort of right. It's uh-huh. to justify the gravitas of the events in that sense. Right. So you know, I've seen all these models, hmm. and they are all prone. To, remember, I work in think tanks, which kind of run basically on this either subscription or access or this thing models. Mm. They are all equally corrupt. Mm. They, they, mm. they are, I, I don't find any one model better than the other model. Right. They're all basically prostitutes. Mm. So then tell me, tell me how do I make sense? Uh, because I log on to Twitter and I read that the whole thing had happened in the Galwan Valley. It's happened near Pangong. And I have Pakistani friends laughing at the fact that, you know, three idiots, wala, that entire scene is no longer like, I have been to that place and now it's no longer part of Indian territory and I'm hurt. So I log on to Twitter. I, I look around and I see um, a certain Mr. Rajesh Shukla with all due respect saying that, you know, some part of India has been taken and he seems credible looking at this Twitter. And then I see an Abhijit Ayer um, Mitra saying, you know, that's the, nobody needs, uh, nobody's reading the maps, right? Nobody's drawing boundaries and Abhijit looks credible. So how do I make sense of my reality then? Okay, so we we have to separate two things. Right. One the example the from audience. the point. Huh. Yeah, uh, we're, we're actually separating three things. One is that social media is about validation. Hmm. It's not about news. It's about seeking validation. In it's actually the early Al Qaeda model. You know, Al Qaeda used to recruit on the dark web, and it was you know like-minded freaks in different parts of the globe who would have been cast out by their village communities had they been freaks in their villages meeting online and creating this online imagined identity, which is the basis of a nation state, basically. A nation state is an imagined entity. Mm. Uh, So this is one aspect. So one is Twitter, social media generally. The second is media as sort of a propaganda platform. Mm. Okay. Which is where you have competing claims in that sense. Sometimes it can be factual. Sometimes it can be wrong. Outright. Uh, The point here was everything that we wrote, we backed up with maps. 
be backed up with imagery, something that Ajay refused to do. Mm. And when he finally started tweeting maps, it was based on the same Detresfa person who he had said, oh, he's a shadowy guy. We shouldn't trust him. La -di -da -di -da, number mm. one. Then the Congress, to bolster its claim, yesterday, Randeep Surjewala tweets the same map out that Detresfa had put up, mm. which directly contradicts his claim. Mm. Right. Uh, so it's you come on there ultimately in Twitter. The good thing about Twitter is you get to see which side mm. uh, you can measure up for yourself. But that, remember, is only 1% mm. of the people who come there. About 15 to 20% there are there for validation. The remaining, say, 70% are just there to take out their anger and frustration of their daily lives on everybody else. Mm -hmm. And this is where Times Now and um, um, uh, Republic are very, very important because they are here to constantly push a right-wing point of view. Mm -hmm. okay? They are not meant for people who want news. I, when I want news, I can no longer go to CNN or NDTV because the quality of their news just pisses me off. They don't have news. They have opinions masquerading around this news. CNN much more so. CNN become terrible. Uh, <coughs> the same for Republican uh, and the others or no? You think they are Absolutely. reliable? Just because they shout and they scream. If you actually look at one of Nidhi Razdan's debates, she's only about a few decibels quieter than Arnab. Hmm. And she maybe takes about 25 to 30% less time than Arnab does. Uh, otherwise, she's just as bad. Uh, I know they'll be horrified at NDTV thinking, but whatever Arnab has done has been exaggerating the NDTV model of mm. media manipulation. Mm. Media manipulation started with NDTV in India. Mm. Okay, It afflicted the newspaper sector later. Of course, the new, new, newspaper sector was corrupt and cartelized even before. But this was how the Republic model grew. And you look at them today, between Times Now and Republic, they control what? 70 to 80%, 70 percent of the market. Mm. Another 15 to 20% of the market is India today. Mm. NDTV has consistently less than 1% of the market. Mm. Okay. So you also have to talk to your audience. They're not here as charity. This is, so this is why I said, so when you tell me, Telling the people what they, giving the people what they want. It's sort of the modern version of the Roman Pane Chirko, you know, bread and circuses. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, in that, I don't see Arnab as, uh, he's, he's the gladiatorial games. Hmm. He's making you go out, he's Caesar, and, you know, he drops the this thing or, Ball. you know, hmm. does Jugula, which is the right. kills, the sword to the heart. Right. Uh, and that's it. So, uh, but remember, NDTV was no better. Mm. All these so-called pretenses of journalism that were, it's, 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 what I see is in that sense is what was happening with NDTV was my childhood. You know, all this pretense of concord, this pretense of informed debate, mm. this pretense that we're giving everybody an equal opportunity, all pretend, 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 make believe, which was absolute rubbish. Okay. Um, so I don't take that seriously. Hmm. I've never taken it seriously. So you, my baseline for measuring has been quite low. Do you get a lot of shit for telling so much, so much of your, like just speaking so much of your mind? 
I'm sure you do. Yeah, man. Yeah. What kind of shit yeah. do you get? कांग्रेस इट्स द रिवर्स it's the leadership that is extremely honest and private very civilized and gracious in uh, private hmm. the followers are all complete bores hmm. so you know there there these two levels there's the sort of don't take twitter as the thing because twitter are basically cowards who are too scared to put their face up and face the consequences of what they're saying hmm. i'm talking about the party as a whole this much honesty in the bjp in the congress there is a lot of introspection and honesty because honestly you know the congress has some of the brightest minds we ever have hmm. this part is extremely honest brutally introspective very very straightforward i mean i really admire some of those people can you name the some of those people for context no okay take it take it that's that's fine that's fine that's fine ha take it and but in bjp in the bjp they have some brilliant people Huh. the problem is our current prime minister micromanages everything and doesn't give them agency mm. remember what you're looking at in the bjp in the congress you're looking at the refined old elite that have in, invested massively in human education mm. in human value addition in the bjp you have the resurgent you know that middle class that's those 600 million people who moved from the rural areas to the urban areas who started voting bjp because they were the assertive new middle class who have yet to acquire that polish and so there is that fundamental honesty that we want to go ahead mm. of course a lot of them are also angry and disappointed and they don't like it when you criticize the government because there has been this very dangerous conflation of three to ter- four terms right hindutva bjp and modi mm. that's a suicidal conflation mm. because when these are four separate circles there was a subset a minor subset in between but when they all become you know sort of the exact same circle when they're all in perfect alignment it's called an eclipse for a reason when mm. the sun and the moon get in perfect alignment mm. you have a total solar eclipse which is considered bad luck this is like that and all the circles start aligning it is nothing but bad luck right. nothing good can come out of the country for this so you know these four circles need to sort of disaggregate they there they should be an overlap but they need to disaggregate well i i had such a good time i think um you were so well read on uh, so many things talking to you is like being bombarded by an encyclopedia this has been an absolute delight for me i've learned a lot hopefully i'll get another chance to do this with you hopefully many more but if one is feasible one is feasible um do you have any questions for me no i'm good i think um <laughs> you know i'm going to follow in uh, karl marx's uh, Huh. Good steps. You know, when he was asked for his last words, 
he was like, last words boss he said yeah you know last words are meant for fools that haven't said enough <laughs> like i think i'm going to die in a dark dingy place dejected like that right. and you say i man i've got nothing to say i've said whatever i wanted to say that <laughs> right 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 theek hai thank you so much this has been phenomenal